0: Hey guys, welcome back to Lifegasm, book one, Marshall's Promise. This book is a podcast, so you should probably listen through from the beginning if you aren't already doing that. All right, let's just get this thing going, shall we? Lifegasm, book one, Marshall's Promise. Chapter eight, the birthday surprise. Let be be finale of Seam. Wallace Stevens from The Emperor of Ice Cream When the sobbing storm had passed, I launched into problem-solving mode. Should I scrap my Colorado plans and drive all the way to New York? Madeline would probably let me stay with her for a hot minute, and I may be able to persuade Vassar to employ me. Should I drive home right away and apply for whatever shitty minimum-wage job I was qualified to do in economically limited LeGrande? Maybe I should apply to work on a cruise ship as a child care provider. Then I wouldn't have to worry about room and board and I could save up some money. But in the end, it didn't make sense to turn down the shelter I'd already lined up with my Colorado people. So, Colorado-bound, I remained. After warping seven hours of drive time, I landed at my friend's place, met their baby, learned how to make zucchini lasagna, then did my best to stay out of their way. They were gracious hosts, and it's not like I felt like a burden, but the ripe red that used to be our friendship felt now like a dusty pink. I spent the majority of my first days in the state exploring the meditation offerings throughout Denver and Boulder. I visited the Shambhala Meditation Center, though I could be pronouncing it incorrectly, the Boulder Zen Center, and the Center for Contemplative Living, as far as I can remember. Most of the venues I noticed were rooted in Buddhism, and it made me wonder how viable a spiritual center might be if it weren't somehow aligned with Buddhism. But it was important to me that whatever project I launched wasn't attached to any existing religion. That isn't to say I wouldn't quote the Buddha or Jesus or Gandhi, for that matter, but I didn't want to open my doors in a way that excluded anyone— It seemed readily apparent, however, that I would be operating within a minority of minorities if I were to launch such a non-denominational spiritual center. As I sojourned from one place to another, participating in the various meditative offerings, I was also busy making mental notes of their fee structure, their scheduling, their lobbies, their vibe, their room size, their glossies, etc., La Grand Organ was no Boulder, Colorado, but I had to start my learning journey somewhere. I want to share with you one semi-troubling pattern I noticed in the first few days of exploration. Every so often, a front desk clerk at one of the centers would ask me how long I'd been meditating or how many hours a week I put in. And when I told them I was, in human years, relatively new to the game, they would eagerly inform me that they had been meditating since they were such and such an age. So young. And that they put in such and such hours a week. So many. This was, I take it, a way to show me that they had won the game? It always made me chello You poor dear, I would think. If you think it's a competition you clearly haven't won. To be fair, I also recognize that honing your art is real. I recognize that every hour you meditate, you are taking one more step in the direction of mastery. And mastery is a direction, not a destination. I'm not saying those guys were wrong to have walked the path they walked. I'm saying they were wrong to think that their path was somehow superior to mine, if that's indeed what they thought. I perceived them to be smug and judgmental, but it's entirely possible that my perceptions were nothing more than projections and that I'm the asshole here. One day, after a particularly inspiring lunch hour meditation session at the Kadampa Center in downtown Denver, where a courteous and grandmotherly woman had sympathetically steered her meditators toward gratitude, I felt full to the brim of meditation— I'd had a mountain of quiet reflection in just a few days, and I figured I'd take a little breather from sitting quietly to simply wander the world and let the lessons of my research swirl within me. What adventure would the universe provide? What sights would I see? What people would I meet? I felt unencumbered and open-hearted. This is how freedom feels. I walked toward the end of the block only to discover the road up ahead was something of a major traffic thoroughfare, and I was turning to retrace my steps and pick a new route when I noticed the building across from me. It was a gentleman's club, and I pondered as I looked upon it. I felt simultaneously curious, disgusted, embarrassed, and a tiny bit scared. This type of high-wattage, conflicting emotional response was a signal I recognized. I could easily stretch the boundary of my comfort zone just by walking inside this building. Hmm, I thought, that sounds like an opportunity. I'd never been into a strip club before, except for that one time in Guam, because I'd always made assumptions about what they represented and what kind of people spent time inside. Now, of course, I was making a habit of questioning everything. Were strip clubs the naughty, gross, exploitive venues full of lowlifes that I'd been conditioned to believe they were? Let's go find out, said my deepest heart. The bouncer checked my ID, sized me up, and offered me a bespoke cover charge. I paid, and he unhooked the velvet rope. The club was classy, lush, dark and smelled sweetly, strangely, of tobacco. I soon discovered that smoking inside was permitted, but there was a mystical absence of stale cigarette stench. There was a bar in the back corner, and copious, curved, velvet-lined pony walls to separate tables and spaces. I ordered a whiskey and milk—I swear it's good— and sat what felt like a discreet table near one of the many stages— It was mid-afternoon on a weekday, however, so there was only one dancer performing to a handful of patrons, and most of them were sitting at the bar. I gazed into my drink for a while, not exactly apprehensive, but not exactly ready. Instead of looking at the woman on the stage, I observed the men at the bar flirting with the employees. I noticed the textures of the space, lots of velvet, and the quality of the lighting. Low and cool. Eventually, when I felt brave enough, I looked up. What I saw almost brought me to tears. The woman was so beautiful and strong and fluid. Here before my very eyes was a semi-naked, dancing human, granting us permission to look upon her strength, grace, and sensuality, And if that wasn't all enough, she had naturally large bosoms, pendulous like mine, and she was clearly proud of those puppies. A brief history of my breasts. Uh, When I was 15, I took the pencil test, as described in Seventeen magazine, wherein you put a pencil under your breast, and if the pencil doesn't fall, you fail the test. So from the age of 15 onward, I fully believed my tits were saggy and disgusting, I carried myself in a way that hid my shame. I tucked in my chest, pulled my shoulders forward, and concaved my spine in what amounted to a physical apology for existing. I'd come to peace with my body, as you already know, but I'd never truly rejoiced my tits, (laughs) not until this moment as I saw their equivalent being proudly paraded in front of me. I wasn't sexually turned on. I was simply in awe— I wondered why are we taught to associate all nudity with sexuality? Here, I admit I was in establishment of explicit sexuality. But why, I wondered, was nudity in general considered inherently perverse? Must we necessarily want sex if we want to be naked? But we're all just naked under our clothes. The next woman took the stage, then the next, and the next. I offered each of them $2 until my wallet was empty. I noticed one fellow with some sort of physical impairment approach the stage. He wasn't in a wheelchair, but I wouldn't have been surprised if he sometimes used one in his day-to-day life. His financial offering was more substantial than mine, and the dancer shimmied up to him, greeting him by name. This wasn't his first rodeo. I watched the interaction between the patron and the hostess, and I saw it for what it really was— a freely given exchange of goods for services. Granted, this exchange was taking place within the bigger system of capitalism, where we must earn money if we want to survive, so the situation wasn't exempt from the standard systemic problems of the soup we're swimming in, but on an individual level, who are we to say that a human shouldn't be allowed to enjoy the physical pleasure of another human's touch in exchange for money if both parties agree to the terms of the trade? I saw the dancer and her patron as two of God's very human children, walking the paths they were born to walk and finding ways to get their needs met. I felt my prejudices fall away. At one point, before I'd run out of cash— one of the dancers brushed off my apologies for my $2 donation. Since the crowd was so sparse and there were no paying customers to attend to, she struck up a conversation with me. I told her I was on a spiritual journey of all things and that I was exploring what it meant to follow the moment-to-moment instructions of my deepest heart. She told me, in an abridged way, about her own journey through awakening and unspeakably tragic loss— We looked at each other and mutually recognized a kindred spirit. In the next breath, we laughed like old friends. She invited me to a yoga class at a YMCA in Boulder later in the week that she promised would be sublime and, what's more, only $7. She gave me her number, told me her real name, and made me promise to send her a line if I needed details about the class or wanted to grab a coffee. Later in the week happened to be August 31st which happened to be my 36th birthday. I woke up in a cozy bed in my very own bedroom. What a treat! I was staying with my son's godparents, who I also knew from the days when we all lived and worked in Yosemite, and I'd arrived at their new Colorado home base the prior evening. We'd spent the long hours of the night chat-chat-chatting, laughing, and eating a savory smorgasbord of homemade goodies. Godmom and Goddad identified as Christian, And while I didn't and never had, I chose them as godparents because I wanted my kids to learn firsthand that most people in the world are good people. Though, of course, we could argue that we are all good people, even if some of us do or say harmful things. And I wanted my kids to learn that most of those good people in the world also have differing opinions about G-O-D. During our conversation the night before, I had felt connected to Godmom, It felt to me like we heard the different language of the other and still recognized that all rivers lead to the sea. Later in the year, however, over the phone, I eagerly shared with her that I could tap into my own Jesus voice and Buddha voice. When she was silent on the other line, I merrily continued. We can all tap into our own Jesus voice, of course, because that's just a different way of saying tapping into our own light. It's amazing. Don't you think that's amazing? amazing she became audibly tense, excused herself clumsily, and we haven't spoken since. She would not be the first self-identifying Christian to respond to my message with unease or anxiety, but I feel confident that nothing about my core message differs from Jesus' core message, or Buddha's core message, or Gandhi's core message for that matter— So while I was later forlorn at the loss of her friendship, I honored her right to disengage without dishonoring the call of my deepest heart. Of course, on the morning of the last day in August, I didn't know that my friendship with Godmom would be one of the casualties of my phoenix's fire. I woke up in her guest room full of life and potential. It was my birthday, and life looked nothing like I thought it would. It was my birthday, and life looked exactly as it needed to. What should I do today? I wondered. Get up high, came the answer. Out came a map, and a mini mountain was selected. Godmom had scooted off to work earlier in the morning, but she'd left a note encouraging me to help myself to the kitchen. So I did. Then I readied myself at a leisurely pace, and in the early afternoon, I embarked on my mission of elevation escalation. I found the trailhead easily hiked straight uphill for about an hour, then decided I was high enough. I was neither prepared for nor desirous of an especially strenuous mountain adventure, so I listened to my body and stopped at what felt like the right place to stop. A flat patch of earth a little distance off the trail beckoned, so I scampered to it, laid my scarf down like a blanket, gave myself an orgasm, free of charge, then closed my eyes. Since my journey toward rebalance had commenced, I had come to learn that one of life's greatest pleasures was outdoor day naps. You can only take an outdoor day nap if the conditions are just right. The weather must be mild, your schedule must be clear, and the environment must not threaten your safety in any way. Isn't it strange how we load so much value into items we can only acquire with money when all this joy is ripe for the picking and, ahem, free of charge. I woke up about an hour later, feeling refreshed and grateful. It was like getting a whole extra day. Two birthdays for the price of one. I sat up and stretched, looking westward toward the city. The view was visual poetry. The air was abundant, and life was so full of golden goodness, I felt my cup runneth over. Even as I remained aware of my upcoming housing dilemma— Every step I took was at the direction of my deepest heart, so I trusted that I would be at the right place at the right time. No need to fret as my path unfolded before me, even if I couldn't see around the next bend. As I slowly woke up, gazing down on the valley below me and pulling in as much of the present moment as I felt capable of pulling, I thought, if this isn't heaven on earth, I don't know what is. What more could a human being ask for on their birthday? Ice cream, said a voice inside me. That's what else you could ask for. A heaping scoop of quality ice cream. But I don't eat sugar in excess anymore, I responded to myself. That was the old me. Then my deepest heart said, this isn't in excess. This is just the right amount. Okay then, if my deepest heart gave the green light. I checked my phone for the best artisan ice cream in Boulder made my way back to the trailhead, and drove off in the direction my phone told me to go. As I drove toward town, in the isolation of my own company, the loneliness of my path came into sharp focus. Weren't birthdays supposed to be enjoyed with a cluster of friends? What sort of idiot leaves a perfectly uncontentious marriage to be alone? But I stopped myself, consciously, from carrying on in that train of thought. If being around people is part of my journey, I trust the opportunity will present itself, and if it isn't, I trust it won't, I thought to myself. I said a prayer of gratitude for what the day was, and not for what it wasn't, and carried on with my sweet, frozen calling. At the gelateria, I bought an ice cream cone that cost more than my upcoming yoga class, and I savored the luxury. Somewhere about mid-cone, the Ghetto by Donnie Hathaway started playing from the shop's sole speaker. Ever since Peaches had woken up what E.E. E. Cumming would call the ears of my ears, I'd been paying more attention to the who, the what, and the why of the music I encountered. This song in particular was an ode to a lifestyle I had never known, but the themes of joyfulness and human connection within a context of poverty or disempowerment struck a spiritual note I could harmonize with. I wish they had a better sound system, I thought for a fleeting moment, then remembered that's not how I rolled anymore. I never wished anything to be different. Sometimes this mantra is misinterpreted as an endorsement of human rights violations, which, I repeat, it is not. What freedom was in this new approach? I wanted to sing it from the rooftops at that very moment, and would have done so if only I'd had a rooftop to sing from. Guys, we can choose bliss right now. Donnie Hathaway was saying so too no extra speakers necessary i took my cone toward the back of the gelateria where i could hear the beats better and i boogied somewhat privately near the lavatories and community bulletin board i found myself dancing in public quite often nowadays i was consciously pushing back against the unwritten rule that said you had to be in a certain building that is a dance club at a certain time of day that is nighttime in a certain state of mind that is, inebriated, if you wanted to dance. We start dying the minute we are born, and if I was destined to die tomorrow, I would be glad to have danced today. When the song was over, I started to gather my things, fully steeped in the golden glow of life. The yoga class suggested by my dancer friend would be starting in the next few hours, and I planned to meander over to that part of town and explore, as I packed up, I didn't consciously notice the ragtag flyers posted on the wall, but one seemed to notice me. Will you believe me, dear reader, dear listener, when I tell you I saw Gongaji's face glowing back at me from that magically manifested bulletin board? I had two thoughts at once. What in the actual fuck? And, of course, I laughed and looked closer. Gangaji was going to be in Boulder in a little over a week. Yes, the same Oregon-based Gangaji whose books I'd read as a teenager and whose conferences I'd given up on attending. Be there, said my deepest heart. Obviously, I agreed. The universe, that master chef, had delivered exactly what I'd ordered. It was a circuitous delivery, to be sure, but who would want it any other way? Surprise! Happy birthday! Everything's gonna be okay! Signed, the universe.